Welcome to Tell Us, a podcast all about technology-enhanced learning and academic development in the world of higher education and beyond. Brought to you by the Tell team at the University of Sussex, with your host, Dan Axon. That's right, I'm Dan Axon and this is the Tell Us podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by not one, not two, but three others. Firstly, from across the desk, my colleague Matt Taylor. Uh, Matt's a learning technologist in the Tell team here at Sussex with a special interest in digital accessibility. Secondly, from across the A27, I'm joined by Fiona McNeil, a learning technologist from the University of Brighton. Um, Particular interest in user experience, but also accessibility as well. And from across half the country, I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Merry from De Montfort University. Kevin's the lead for academic development at DMU, an award-winning teacher. He's, been re- he's received accolades for his pioneering approaches to online learning via flipped classroom approaches. But he's also internationally renowned for his work on Universal Design for Learning, or UDL. Now, on Global Accessibility Awareness Day a couple of months back, uh, Brighton and Sussex, we collaborated on a couple of events, including uh, a keynote webinar from Kevin, in which he gave a great insight into the UDL journey that DMU has been on. And it's off the back of this that Fiona, Matt and myself caught up with Kevin to pick up on some of the themes that came out of his talk. To find out more about any of our guests, check out the link in the show notes, or the links in the show notes, along with a link to Kevin's uh, Global Accessibility Awareness Day talk. That's all from me for now. I'll be back at the end. In the meantime, please enjoy this conversation. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by a number of colleagues from um, within Sussex, but also from Brighton and De Montfort University, and um, we'll get them introduce themselves in a moment. But I'm uh, first joined by Kevin Murray, who joined us, um, or Dr. Kevin Murray, should I say, joined us for a seminar a couple of weeks back, which was a collaborative seminar, part of Global Accessibility Awareness Day, um, that Matt and Fiona led on uh, for um, sort of a collaborative effort between Sussex and Brighton. And uh, the topic was around uh, accessibility, but also universal design for learning in particular, and the the DMU journey thus far. Uh, And it's been quite a journey, as we found out in that seminar. So if you're listening from Sussex or from Brighton and you're able to check out the recording of that, I'll put a link in the show notes. So we're going to pick up on some of the themes that came out during that seminar and and further further conversation around UDL and more. Um, But first, before we dive in, um, I do like to ask, I guess, sometimes is um, what's the answer to the dinner party question, which is what do you do? Um, because as we know in, in our trade, that that can be quite a tricky thing to answer depending on A, which university you're from and A, which day of the week it is, <laughs> depending on what you're doing that day. So um, let's start with, with you, Kevin. Kevin, dinner party question, what do you do? So I'm an educational developer. And what that means to me is that I try and find new, exciting and innovative ways of helping learners learn more effectively. Uh, did that sound nice and uh, exciting? The reality is a great. bit different, obviously, but um, <laughs> I'll try and ham it up a little bit. That sounded great and um, well rehearsed as well. You Thank you. About that. I well, did. You've been yeah. to a lot of dinner parties. <laughs> not not lately, no, due to the <laughs> pandemic, but um, hopefully, fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And Fiona, same question to you. My title is learning technologist. How I sort of self-describe is a user-centered designer, actually, and. What I think about is how to best integrate technology into learning and teaching with a design lens, I would say. 
Thank you very much. And very apt for, for this conversation as well in terms of design. Uh, Matt, question to you. Great. So I'm a learning technologist at Sussex. Um, I normally describe it as supporting people to use technology in their teaching is the kind of, um, so that'd be websites, apps and things like that in order to facilitate and enhance teach the teaching experience. And don't fix printers. And don't fix printers. No. <laughs> Despite how many emails you may get. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, th- thank you for that all. I, th- I think what's um, particularly interesting, uh, and within the context of this uh, conversation we're, we're going to have today, is that the roles that we we all, all involved in are very broad in nature and have multi- multiple facets. And I think Universal Design for Learning particularly speaks to that broad nature of our role. And, um, you know, Kevin, you know, you're leading a lot of the work that's done at DMU and as an educational developer. But, of course, there's a lot of technology um, uh, to be considered when it comes to UDL as well. And I know that um, we'll, we'll come to, we'll perhaps come to some of those conversations. Cool. Um, but, Kevin, if I don't mind asking you to start, if, if you could just give us, um, you know, think of framing it within a tweet or maybe uh, two threads. I might let you have a single additional tweet thread. Um, how would you describe ODL, uh, UDL rather, um, Universal Design for Learning, to someone that, that either hasn't heard about it or doesn't know what, what it is? What, what would your pitch be for UDL? Yeah, I think I think the simple way to describe it would be that it's it's a way of supporting learners to achieve expertise over their learning by enabling them to customize their learning experience according to how they get interested in learning, the types of learning resources that we provide them with and how they're able to demonstrate their understanding and I think in a nutshell that's that kind of sums it up for me. That's really helpful. Thank you, Kevin. And I think you touched on there that the fact that, um, and there'll be links in the show notes for this, but it is organised into these sort of three principal areas, isn't it? Uh, and it centres around the individual and activating that individual in, in very much their learning. And at DMU, you're very much at the opposite end of the spectrum of this journey through UDL, uh, certainly with respect to where we in Sussex and I know in Brighton, uh, where we are, where they are as well. So, and you've been going on this uh, for a number of years now, but if you could give us some sense of the scale of this project, um, as I say, not to regurgitate the seminar that you've already done for us, but just give a sense for our listeners um, when, the, you know, when the project started uh, and the scope and scale of it, because it's, it's been a big project, uh, not least an important one. It has. It's been a huge one. It, it, it started in earnest, really, in, in late 2015. And the main driver behind it was the sort of exceptional learner variability that we have in our students at De Montfort University. I mean, as a whistle-stop kind of tour, uh, around 54% of our students come from BAME backgrounds. Uh, we've got close to 20% students with declared disabilities. There are more than 3,000 students from... Um, international uh, that that are international students from over 130 countries so there's a very diverse group and community of learners within the institution and we just felt that a one-size-fits-all way of teaching them just wouldn't work Um, you know we needed to find more bespoke more customizable ways to ensure that the vast majority of those students could learn effectively and could achieve successful outcomes and as I say the project, the UDL project, has been an institution-wide one. It lasted five years initially, 
um, and encompass lots of different work. I mean, you said at the top of the of the show today, it's not just about the kind of pedagogy. It's also been about the the technology, but also kind of engaging with people from disability services engaging with our professional regulatory and statutory bodies on each program to ensure that what we're trying to do uh, is okay with them. It encompasses assessment. So it's not just a kind of one thing, really. It's a very all-encompassing approach, which is probably why we've had a big five-year project that has underpinned it over at DMU. Yes, it's a a meaty thing for sure. And and, and again, uh, and I'll say it again, undoubtedly, uh, those listening, if you're able to check out the seminar uh, for more detail on that. And I know that yourselves at DMU, you've got lots of stuff online about the project as well uh, for those to check out. And we can put all those links in. Um, Quick question there. Um, What what was it about UDL that spoke to you, uh, you 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 and your colleagues at uh, DMU? Um, particularly because, as you highlight today in your seminar, but also uh, I'm sure we'll touch on here, a lot of universal design for learning is is simply good teaching, good pedagogy, good practice. Um, so, what was it that UDL offered you to, as a either as a as a sort of transport for that, or some kind of uh, mechanism or tool, or um, did it help reframe what you're trying to do, or you know, rather than just going down the line of trying, you know. Con- just enhancing teaching what was it that UDL provided for you in in terms of that project yeah I think on a personal level it was very well aligned with my own sort of pedagogic philosophy I mean I've been teaching in HE for about 15 years and the nature of the roles that I've held meant that the the gospel of UDL if you like was was very close to the way that I believe learning and teaching should actually play out in a higher education context but I think more broadly one of the great things about UDL is that you can hook it onto what we would assume to be um, existing core pedagogic principles in, in terms of effective learning. So it aligns very well with a lot of the constructivist principles that most UK higher education institutions would espouse as a as a useful way forward. So we're talking about things like um, Bloom's taxonomy and, and developing cognitive uh, thinking skills. We're talking about constructive alignment. We're talking about active learning. And UDL meshes really, really well with those things. So one of the real advantages that we had, I think, is that we were quite good particularly early on at hooking UDL onto that kind of existing pedagogic message and that was important because it meant that we weren't asking asking colleagues to do something completely new or completely different um, after already asking them to sort of teach in a particular way to, to engage students from a student-centered perspective so I, th- I think that's one of the great benefits really of, of UDL in the approach and how it meshes quite well with that constructivist um, viewpoint on learning and teaching. Thank you for that. Um, let's say it's, it's come back to the project, and it may be you may have a recent example, or you may have an early example. What um, what stood out for you, uh, and you may have a specific thing or something more general. But is there something that stood out for you as a kind of surprise, or something that was um, new, or it could be something new or interesting, or something that was uncovered as part of the project that you thought? Bloody hell, that's amazing. You know, we've not seen that before, or, or this is great. Let's shout all about it. This is something that really stood out to you during the project. Yeah, I think there were a couple of things. I mean, I was no expert in UDL when we first started. I mean, I'll be honest about that. I think initially I just assumed it was about um, accessibility and, and nothing more than that, just kind of having those anticipatory adjustments and, and all that type of work, which is really, really valuable, of course. 
But the idea that it was about kind of learner mastery and supporting that development of learning expertise was really important to me because the kind of background that I come from, I'm a physiologist by trade. So we're very much about kind of developing um, expertise through a lot of repetition and a lot of kind of feedback corrected practice because you've got to remember a lot of factual information and then when you've remembered it you've got to be able to apply it so that was very close to my own view of kind of how learning works in context and that was a bit of a surprise because I thought well actually there's a real kind of pedagogy that underpins this it's not just about anticipatory adjustment and making things more accessible you know font sizes modifiable formats etc although that is part of it I think the other big surprise or pleasant surprise was that there were many more colleagues than I expected that were actually doing UDL without actually calling it UDL. You know, they were teaching um, according to those core principles of UDL because they were just good teachers. Don't get me wrong. There were lots of people that weren't um, and they were the difficult ones to try and convert. Um, But that kind of core group that were there and and teaching in a very UDL friendly manner without really knowing it was a big surprise because I expected there to be a lot less. Um, so credit to, to De Montfort University in the kind of years before I joined, that they'd obviously had a, a model for developing teaching capability that was very inclusive, very accessible, very much about active learning and, and student-centred. So, yeah, that was one of the other big pleasant surprises, really. That's great. And I, and I know, um, you know, in, in light of your seminar the other day, um, certainly in uh, ourselves, in our team in Sussex, and, and, and I, I dare say, Fiona, with yourselves as well, you, you kind of become more attuned to some of these things that are already happening. And you kind of think, wicked, that's a great place to start. There's some wicked stuff happening already. Um Let's 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 uh, so let's move on a little bit from teaching and learning. And Fiona, you, you have a question um, around this, and, and Kevin, you touched on it there, which is UDL is is a broad has broad scope and broad application, and there's a, naturally and, and rightly a lot of focus on classroom practice, uh, pedagogy, technology in the classroom, but of course, universal design principles can be applied much broader than that. And, and I know Fiona had some questions around the sort of procurement and, and ongoing maintenance around technologies in particular. Um, did you want to jump in there? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that interests me about UDL is the capacity for it to apply on several different levels. So whether that's thinking holistically about the curriculum Um, Also, the ways that you collaborate with other colleagues um, from different departments, as you've mentioned, but then also on that sort of level of procurement and um, deciding which technologies are integral to delivering that UDL vision. So I was wondering if you might be able to talk a bit more about how that helps you structure your thinking at 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 DMU around that. Yeah, it's a really good question, actually, because, I mean, technology as a tool is absolutely essential to to UDL and good UDL practice, because across each of those three principles, you have far greater options and and flexibility if you utilize various technologies. You know, if you want to get students interested in learning, it's much easier to do that if you've got lots of technological enhancements that you can apply. The same with assessments and the same with various forms of learning resource. I think in terms of procurement and the way that we go about 
deciding on what technologies are best is probably mostly based around the cheese sandwich that I, I spoke about previously. When we're talking about kind of pedagogic and classroom-based practice, it's about looking at that model and saying, well, what what is going to work best in any given context? So in the transition to um, the emergency transition to remote virtual learning due to COVID, um, obviously a lot of lectures went online, they were pre-recorded. We used our DMU replay software to do those asynchronous learning resources because there's lots that we can do with it. I mean, I've got a view on, on other technologies that I think might be a little bit better. But in terms of pragmatism, pra uh, practicality, the fact that everybody was already using that technology, they'd received lots of training in it, the institution had invested lots and lots of money in it, it made lots of sense to say, well, you know, that first slice of bread in the cheese sandwich where a student engages with an asynchronous resource like an online lecture, it would be best served by creating that using DMU Replay, for example, because we can provide closed captions, we can put quizzes in there, we can embed videos, and the students and staff are actually au fait with how it works and, and, and know what to do with it. Um, so those sorts of decisions are, are kind of very much geared around mostly the external context, actually. I mean, I think a lot of institutions now are at the point where they're kind of having to rethink how learning is going to be delivered post-COVID. You know, it, it probably won't go back to the way that it was pre-COVID. There's probably going to be a lot more of a blend so we're kind of at the point now where we're thinking about, well, how do we maintain that UDL approach, uh, but in this new operating environment in terms of having an, in, an enhanced level of blended uh, learning? And there's certainly some work going on at DMU at the moment, which is looking into a, a, a new VLE. Um, I can't say too much about that because there's not been much actually said, in all honesty, in relation to what products we might we might look into. But certainly UDL and the UDL approach will certainly be a big factor in what what VLE and what road we go down with the VLE moving forward because it needs to be able to um, support that active collaborative learning um, through um, e-tivities as we sometimes call them, um, knowledge checks, providing feedback, whether that's automated or through teacher interface and interaction or peer interaction. So I hope that wasn't too much of a woolly answer, but it, it's kind of changing all the time. And I think Dan made a good point that we've obviously been on this journey for, for five years and we kind of thought that we were just starting to get, you know, we know what we're doing with this now, but then COVID happened and it's a bit like, oh, okay, we know that we're going to stick with UDL, but it's got to flex and it's got to change a little bit to support the new external environment. And that will inevitably influence uh, the role that technology plays. Thank you, thank you, Fiona. I think um, it, clearly what you highlighted there is it's it's important that UDL as a as a question has a seat at the table when these things are being discussed. Um, you know, procurement table. Um, so it's about how how we do that is a good is a good point. Um, let's move on a little bit to culture because uh, I found this really interesting, and I know again, Fiona, we'll, we'll come back to you on this one. Cause you had a question about this for Kevin, and you, you touched on it earlier. Um, Kevin, about those that were already doing some great work and great teaching, and and those that perhaps were slightly more challenging and and hard to hard to reach with what you were trying to do, and um, and I know you spoke in your um, seminar about having the champions and essentially this being just a huge change project as well. So uh, Fiona, I know you've got uh, yeah some questions on culture that you'd like to ask as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one of the things that's appealing to me about UDL is I think you need a strategic vision. So you need big projects to solve big problems. 
I think we see a lot of little projects in HE that try and do what is sort of colloquially termed as quick wins. And actually, the quick wins are islands unto themselves and don't actually feed into a larger strategy as, as much as folks might hope they would. Um, so I think what I'm interested in is how to how to help how how you supported staff to feel like they're part of this large strategic vision. Um, and specifically, I was interested in some of the elements you discussed as being sort of mandatory and how that staff re responded to that in terms of the culture of academe and the culture of DMU. Again, really excellent question. I, I think the cultural shift or, or the biggest factor to try and get right in the cultural shift was to try and shell, uh, try and try to sell that paradigm shift really. So to those colleagues that were perhaps not espousing a UDL approach to teaching, it was about kind of convincing them that, well, actually in, in modern higher education, perhaps your role as a, as a lecturer isn't to just sort of pontificate on your specialist subject and deliver content. You've actually got to support learning and support effective learning by doing a little bit more than that. And that was the that was the hardest thing to sell. Um, in terms of how we did that and how we got people involved in that change project, as you mentioned, it was mostly around good communications. So part of our adoption strategy, which involved um, the tipping point idea and um, adoption of innovations by Rogers, etc., uh, involved a very large communications aspect where it was about informing people but, but gaining their commitment and buy-in. Um, and that I'm not going to lie, that was a challenge because there were some people that for a long, long time didn't really want to engage with that process. Um, the, the, the key message really was, look, you know, our, our students aren't the same as they were, you know, five years ago, let alone 10 or 20 years ago. They're changing constantly and they're going to be changing constantly as we move forward into the future. The level of diversity that underpins them means that their needs are exceptionally diverse and we have to respond to that because if we can't respond to that very well, they're not going to achieve very much. And if they don't achieve very much, that's going to be on us. So we have to respond to that. And that message was, was very, very clear. It wasn't a kind of, you know, we didn't sort of tell them off or sort of lecture them in relation to that. It was just like, this is our university. This is what we're about. We're a very teaching focused university. These are the types of students that we get. Um, and this is how we have to respond to them. And, and people couldn't really argue with that. Um, in relation to mandatory training, um, it's actually got to the point now where people really value it. We, we don't call it UDL mandatory training. We call it the DMU learning and teaching ethos. So we try and encapsulate it more in terms of this is the way we do things at, at, at DMU. And actually, we think it's just good teaching. Um, and, and that's absolutely fine. When we first rolled it out, there was a really, we kind of... Um, I don't know what the right phrase is. We kind of sheep dipped a lot of people through uh, in a very short space of time. And there were some challenges with that because people felt that we were trying to tell them how to teach. Um, but nevertheless, they kind of had to do that. But one thing we did was to try and provide some follow-up sessions that kind of went a little bit deeper into the theory and practice and application uh, of UDL to support those people that perhaps were a little bit sceptical. There's always going to be those, those laggards, uh, according to the, to the Gladwell tipping point model, that, that you'll never get on board. Um, 
but obviously the idea is to reach that tipping point and get get the most people that you can on board and, and behind the ideas with the project. Uh, we still run the mandatory training. It's, it's not gone anywhere yet, even after five years. And elements of the mandatory training are embedded within our postgraduate um, certificate in academic practice and also in our introduction to learning and teaching for, for those that are new uh, to higher education teaching. So in many ways, staff can't get away from it. And we did that sort of deliberately because if we said, you know, if we made this optional, lots of people would opt not to do it. Uh, for, for for many many different reasons so i hope that answered the question fiona matt yeah no i was gonna i was gonna ask kind of related to this i mean did you find that there were differences across schools and departments in terms of what on in terms of adoption and in terms of kind of how how they implemented it as well i mean did is it was it consistently implemented across everything and it seen as sufficiently broad that that everything applied across everything or, or did you find that some people found they were able to apply things more easily than others and, and so on? Yeah, most certainly. That's a really good question because there were some subject, um, you know, discipline specific ways in which to apply UDL, you know, the way that you apply it in say, um, the faculty of business and law will be very different in art design and humanities, you know, where they're doing sort of performing arts related programs. So that's where the UDL champions really came to the fore because these were people that were actually from each of the faculties and the academic schools. So that was the kind of having that insider voice in the best way to interpret UDL. And I think that word interpretation is important actually because it's, it won't be the same in terms of its application for every subject discipline. Um, it, it just won't be. You know, We know that the way that people learn and the way that learning happens across disciplines does have some kind of core principles, but it will be different in terms of some of the nuances and the minutiae that, that go with that. I mean, I talked about... Um, me coming from an exercise physiology background, um, a lot of the learning that we did is kind of at the bottom of Bloom's taxonomy, there was a lot of remembering of facts, even at level seven and level eight. It's just that the complexity of that remembering of facts gets harder and harder and harder. So there are different ways to approach learning for different subject areas. So having that insider voice, having those with expertise in those subject areas was well, we wouldn't have been able to do it without those people, actually, because I, I, I couldn't go into art, design and humanities and tell people on an, on an architecture course how they should be interpreting these principles and ideas. I can provide some guidance and I can say, well, in my area, we do it this way. But you really do need that insider voice to support things. And, and that's where the champions were really, really critical. Sort of um, in tandem with the notion of champions, I was just wondering how... How you wrote, how you drew out the student voice in terms of the positive impact that this could, that adopting UDL could have for students. I'm thinking about the accessibility side of things because I think sometimes I come across a viewpoint where um, staff think that once students have got to university, they've all already got over that hurdle and that they should be able to cope with anything that's thrown at them. And I think that it's about, for me as someone who's accessibility focused and user centered i want to make sure that it's it's made clear that actually you know expecting people to create their own alternative formats which takes lots and lots of time is something that shouldn't be the norm and there's absolutely nothing there's no problem at all in fact the norm should be that people can have things in any format particularly given that the technology supports that now and so as an example it's like how do how did you sort of communicate what the effect would be for students and 
support that with testimonials or whatever else to try and get that story across to staff so that it really rang true and helped them to realize what an impact this could make? Yeah, I mean, we were very um, conscious of the fact that we needed to communicate this this major change uh, with our students because ultimately it was there to benefit them. I think one of the one of the key hooks with students is that the UDL became a big part of the whole learning to learn piece for students. So the kind of transition into higher education, and I've always found actually that when you teach students and get them to learn a little bit about effective teaching, that really supports their own understanding of how they learn most effectively. You know, so knowing about things like Bloom's taxonomy and actually their their cognitive skills in the same way as any other skills and that you'll master them by practicing them, by having kind of repetitious practice in sessions, the students understand that that's useful. Um, You know, teaching students about things like constructive alignment and saying, well, look, these are the outcomes for this module. This is what you've got to be able to demonstrate by the time you've been assessed these are the assessments. You can see that they directly reflect each other. And this is what we're going to do on an ongoing fashion in each session to support, you know, the link between those two things. They go, oh, okay. And we tried to sell that to them in a very sort of under that broader banner of universal design for learning. We were saying, look, you're all going to approach uh, the way you learn, uh, the way you get engaged, what you enjoy, what resources you um, get the most from in, in a completely different and unique way. What we're trying to do with this UDL approach is to try and make it as easy and customizable for you to find the best way to support your learning. Um, and I think a question came up actually when I did the, 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 the seminar previously about did some students feel a little bit overwhelmed by the choices? And I think, yeah, some of them did. You know, if you're saying, look, there's, you know, eight different resources that are basically providing the same information, you might go, well, I'm not quite sure what, what the best one is for me. But part of our sort of planning for learning and teaching, and we, we do this on our, our PG CAP course, actually, is we've really tried to encourage um, staff to start creating learner profiles, which requires them to talk to students, to find out about student preferences. In some circumstances, students come to university and they don't know what their preferences are. I mean, if somebody had have asked me, first year university, how do you like to learn best? I'd have been like, I, I don't know, just, just, just tell me what you want me to learn and I'll, I'll go away and learn it. So that awareness of sort of, what is your preference? And then our role as the educators is to sort of feed that preference. If if you can provide us with some information about what works best for you, and we will help you to do that by talking to you, by giving you questionnaires, by doing all of that kind of work about um, profiling the learners, then then this is how we can make things easier for you. And and, and students were really responsive to that. Um, We did try and use a lot of testimonials in the institution-wide communications that our marketing and communications department sort of led on. Um, we had a micro site, we had sort of regular emails and we always, where possible, tried to embed, uh, some student, uh, feedback and student testimonials in there. We created a short video with our students, uh, to demonstrate how UDL really works for them. We got some of them to speak on those videos and we really did try and push those, those things across the institution. So the student voice thing is, is massive really, because obviously without their buy-in, it doesn't matter that we think it's right. If they don't derive any benefit from it and they can't see that there's any benefit from it, it, it almost makes it pointless, really. Um, I'm going to move on to impact in a moment. I've got a couple of uh, questions I want to just pick on around around culture. One is um, actually, what, what do you think the light bulb moment was for for some of your colleagues? Uh, and you may be able to give a specific example that you either observed or heard about. Um, you know, what was 
visibly or practice based what was that tipping point what did when when did you see that happen for someone and it, yeah as i say if you can maybe it may be an example but i'd be interested to see what that light bulb moment was that, that you perceived it to be anyway for some yeah i mean it might sound quite a narrow one because it's a specific example but it, it really was a tipping point light bulb moment was the kind of success and the popularity among the students of dmu replay so when we started to record lectures and we made that mandatory the level of engagement from the students was just off the scale. We had millions of views within like months of doing that. And the students were like, this is amazing. This is fantastic because, you know, I can't always trust the notes that I make in lectures. I don't always get time to write everything down. I'm sometimes frightened to go back to the teacher and ask. Um, so if I've got a recording, that's absolutely fine. I, c I can do that. We had other students that said, you know what? Due to work commitments, childcare commitments, I can't always be there for scheduled sessions. So if there is a recording of the session that I can pause, I can play back, you know, it's got embedded resources in it. Absolutely fantastic. That was a real tipping point moment, I think, for staff because staff were very sceptical when we, we made it mandatory to record staff-led teaching. I mean, I, on a personal level, took some real flack for that because I was one of the, the lucky people that had to go to the, across the institution and try and sell that to people and say, oh, yeah, you know, by the way, from, from this date, you're going to all have to hit the record button in your lectures. And they were like, what? This is just preposterous. But the moment that they yeah. started to see the impact that it was having on the students, they were like, okay. I get it now. I see. I see how this is really important. And I guess highlighting that data just shows how valuable it is to for us to be able to support the academics seeing that data. Um, Matt's got some questions about impact, which we're going to move on to. And finally, because you touched on students, and I hadn't put it in the question, so I'm going to take the liberty to add this in before we do move on. Sorry, Matt, to keep you on tenter hooks there. Um, is um, around students? How, uh, if if at all? were involved with students in this project were they, were they uh, partners in it at any point or um you know con as consultants or, or simply as advisees or uh, did students have involvement in this project they certainly did so I'll, I'll i'll frame it in a kind of broader sense so our learning teaching and assessment strategy had three pillars one was udl the other was co-creation and the final one was building capability and they were kind of all linked. So we sort of said, well, look, you know, part of the UDL story is about using students as partners to find the best way for them to learn in the most effective fashion. So we have to talk to them about that. We have to involve them in that process. So we had students that were on the project board in the formalized sense um, that were kind of linked in with the student union. Some of the outputs from the UDL project, so I talked about the, um, I, I think I talked about it anyway, the, the cutlass learning design process, which is a way of building courses around the cheese sandwich. Uh, that's a team-based approach to building courses and building modules, and part of the team must involve some students. So when the program team and whoever else is there actually deciding on, you know, this is going to be the journey that the students take through the learning, the students have an input into that. You know, the, the e-learning activities that we create and embed directly into the VLE, we get the students to say, you know, actually that's not very good or, oh, I like that or, you know, I'm going to road test that, we'll see and provide some feedback. So students have always been a really, really important part and it, and it espoused those other aspects as well. So, you know, co-creation, UDL was a great vehicle for co-creation as part of that strategy. Um, but also as part of UDL, it's been 
It's been an outlet to enhance digital capabilities of both staff and students. So our Centre for Enhancing Learning Through Technology have created digital capabilities frameworks for staff and students. And UDL has been a big part of actually pushing those and pushing the agenda on those. So we're saying, look, if we've got a highly developed UDL approach, it's much easier to develop those student digital capabilities as it is much easier to develop those those staff digital capabilities as well. So that was kind of the the framework really for involving students and making sure that students were really at the centre of this. That's really helpful. Thank you for that, Kevin. Uh, Matt, I'm going to hand over to you here a little bit because you, you had some questions around impact and particularly how, how we measure it. Yeah, no, so I, I, I know from, from your seminar you, you mentioned that you have a kind of work stream around evaluation and how, how checking how well the project's going. And I'm just kind of, yeah, really interested to find out more about that and more about how, one, you're measuring the, you know, the adoption, but also how you're measuring um, whether how well that's achieving the ultimate outcomes of the institution, you know, of, of better outcomes for students, higher, higher attainment, potentially, things like this, you know, how's, how's that coming, coming across? And how do you maintain this as well? Um, you know, how do you maintain it over time? The evaluation piece is probably the most challenging piece because it's obviously hard to make that direct link between we're doing UDL and everybody's coming out with fantastic outcomes. Um, very, very challenging to do that. We obviously talk to students directly and get their feedback um, and their testimonials on, on how well uh, they feel that um, not, not necessarily that the UDL element has been designed into courses, but it's, it's an inherent part now of our module level feedback processes. Um, so obviously students can comment on UDL related issues through module level feedback to give us a bit of a sense check as to how well we've done in relation to embedding that. It's the same when we do um, program level feedback as well. Um, we've obviously talked to the students specifically as part of the project through focus groups, through various interviews, questionnaires, etc. in terms of what have you seen in relation to practice? Is it UDL friendly? Does it you know, show us that, that staff are teaching in a very UDL friendly fashion. I've done a, a, a small, it was more of a pilot study really that I'm, I'm looking to hopefully publish at some point in the future on our postgraduate certificate in, in academic practice because that was designed specifically to exemplify UDL. So we basically surveyed all of the students and said, you know, there are, there are 39 items on a questionnaire that all reflect UDL practice. How many of them have you actually been... Um, witness to uh, you know how many of them have you actually seen and engaged with during the course of this program and I think they said 36 out of 39 which was pretty good and then the other part of that was to say well to what extent do those things actually support your effective learning and I think there was something like 36 out of the 36 that they saw did support their effective learning so we can get a bit of a sense check in that respect we also look at things like you know DMU replay engagement um, and, and the feedback on students uh, the feedback from students on, on things like that. As I say, I think we've had, I can't remember what the figures are now. I think of December last year, we'd had something like 4 million views or something like that already. We stopped counting, actually. We started to count towards the first 500,000, the first million, the first 2 million, and then we just said there's no point in counting anymore because the students just love it and, and you know, engagement's only going to get higher and higher and higher. Um, but I think other impacts, which are probably a bit more nuanced, you know, UDL now is part of our program approval and validation processes. So whenever we want to create a brand new program, you have to demonstrate how it's being uh, developed in a UDL-friendly fashion. 
is part of our annual quality monitoring processes across the institution. So every program um, at the end of the year has to do a program appraisal and enhancement document and UDL is embedded within that. It's embedded within the assessment and feedback policy. So although it's quite difficult to say this was the actual impact on students, you know, and we can't really do that, you know, the reason a student got a first or a two one was because of UDL, we've been able to sort of demonstrate the impact of it in other ways. It's had a big impact on us in terms of our policies, our processes, the way we're expected to do things, how we're expected to show um, the quality assurance and quality enhancement aspects. But it's it's still an ongoing piece of work, really. Um, as I say, it's, it's not always an easy one to say, well, because we did X, we got Y. And I think... Um, we were quite mindful yeah. of that because, again, we had to sell this to the to the executive level of the organisation, and I think there were certain people at that level that thought we should evaluate it in that way, and we're like, well, it's just impossible to, you know, to, to, to get to that level of, of granularity. Have you have you been able to kind of see or measure kind of attainment gap between you know the minority groups and um, things that you mentioned at, uh, at the beginning of your? of your talk you know uh, obviously you have a very large BAME community a very large kind of um lots of people with registered disabilities have you have you noticed uh, a, a narrowing of attainment gap if there if there was one yeah so one of the follow-on projects from UDL was a project called freedom to achieve which was about narrowing the BAME attainment gap and a big part of our approach to that particular project was was UDL so we were saying look if, if we've got a more UDL uh, friendly approach to the way that we teach and it's more customizable and it, and it better reflects the learner preferences and needs, then the hope is that that will start to close that attainment gap. It did close that attainment gap by um, some small percentage points. I can't remember specifically what it was, but it did actually have an impact on closing the attainment gap. The next steps uh, have been the institution-wide project around decolonizing the curriculum. So that's currently happening at the moment. Um, there are various work streams that are playing a part in that. UDL obviously plays a part uh, around the kind of differentiation aspects of, of learning and you know making sure that we differentiate for all learners. The other aspect, of course, is looking at how the curriculum itself and the content of the curriculum can be actually modified um, through the, the decolonization lens, which is probably less part of, of what we're trying to do with UDL, but nevertheless, it has it has a direct link to that. So certainly the work of, of myself and my team is kind of focusing on how we can support that project to, to further reduce that, that attainment gap. Thank you for that. And and just lastly on impact, just a quick question. Um, you know, obviously you don't need to have facts and figures on this, but have you noticed an impact on things like the amount of reasonable adjustments uh, having to be made in, during assessments, the amount of uh, claims for extenuating circumstances, um, you know, numbers of resits, that, that, kind of, that kind of data around assessment? Have, have you seen a shift as a result of um, UDLifying uh, assessment, so to speak? Certainly the anecdotal feedback from colleagues that work in student services has been very positive in relation to those sorts of things. I couldn't tell you what the specific facts and figures are in relation to you know, reasonable adjustments, that type of thing. But certainly the 
recording of lectures um, has made a big impact on students in relation to things like exam revision. Uh, so obviously it's much easier to revise for an exam if you've got, you know, 12 recordings of 12 sessions that you can refer back to instead of some kind of scrawled notes. And, you know, if you missed a session, you've got nothing and you've got to borrow something off your friends or whatever. Um, and just that the increased variety in the types of assessments as well has been something that's been really, you know, positively um, championed by people in, in, in student disability services because it was felt that a lot of assessment methodologies were actually a huge barrier to many students actually demonstrating their learning effectively, particularly exams for, for various reasons. I mean, we've probably all been in a situation, haven't we, where we've done a summative assessment, say an exam, come out of it and thought, if I'd have just been given the opportunity to do a presentation or write an essay, I think I could have done much better there. I think I know what I needed to do, but the kind of pressurized circumstances of an exam and the time constraints and the fact that I've got to hand write it and after one page, you know, my writing's not legible, you know, that, that might mean that I can't demonstrate my understanding to, to the best extent. So certainly the anecdotal feedback from, from those colleagues has been really, really positive, yeah. Yeah. And they, in yeah. fact, they've been one of the biggest advocates, actually. The guys that work in, in disability services and student welfare have been among some of the biggest advocates institution wide of, of this particular approach because we've got so many students with declared disabilities. And that speaks volumes in, in the fact that they're, they're highly likely they're seeing an impact in their daily work and this, this the experience of the students they work with. Um, thank you for that. And, and oh, okay. So I've got some questions about COVID-19, but you, you touched on that um, quite nicely early on. And it, and it just highlighted to me that UDL is something that will always force us to evolve uh, because the world is always changing. You know, you spoke earlier about the, the, the student body becoming more diverse and increasingly diverse and with an increasingly range of experiences and qualifications coming into university on entry. Um, you know, it means we have to constantly be shifting to support those students to achieve um, what they're capable of uh, and to their full extent. And um, I really like that. And I think uh, the pandemic has highlighted for many of us just how responsive we, um, unresponsive we perhaps have been uh, uh, or unmovable as objects we have been and, and actually can can be going forward because lots of people have just stepped up into this and and you know the people that it's certainly in my experience um uh, i've seen that you would not have come anywhere near us as a technology department uh, a few years ago um you, you know now some of our you know biggest advocates in terms of what they're able to now do in, and use so yeah that's what i really like about um about that uh, udl approach is it's responsive to that I'm going to stop waffling and come on to the sort of wrap up really of, of, of this chat because um, I, I completely agree with what Fiona was saying earlier is uh, little wins and small projects are okay to a point. Um, but, uh, you know, th that I, I love that phrase, big problems for uh, big solutions for big problems. Uh, and I think, um, you know, the strategic view. That said, um, what I'd like to do is if, if you've got um, if you've got any sort of things from your experience over the year that any listeners who are going to go into the classroom tomorrow so they're not going to do not that there's necessarily teaching happening at the moment but anyone that might be going into classroom tomorrow um that you know isn't necessarily going to be developing any resources but could perhaps do something slightly different or try something new that you may consider low effort but potentially high impact what, what you know is there any couple of things that spring to mind in that respect well, I've always found that 
that, that flipping the classroom is always a really worthwhile way to support that mastery over learning, even if it's done in a very sort of basic way. You know, you don't necessarily have to go away and create super sophisticated videos or screencasts or whatever. It's just freeing up that time uh, when the teacher is present with the learners to support that mastery over learning. And actually, instead of making the contact time purely about content transmission and remembering stuff can it be more about learning actively asking questions uh, getting students to teach each other to provide feedback to each other to get feedback from the uh, from the teacher to sort of go through that kind of repetitious feedback loop that enables students to master those those more difficult skills really um, and again that's that's something that's probably sometimes difficult for some colleagues to get their heads around because they're like what don't teach them anything in a session it's like well but you still are teaching them something but you're not necessarily teaching them the content they can engage with that in other ways you're you're supporting them in developing the, the skills that you're going to assess them on you know their ability to be critically analytical their ability to evaluate things their ability to synthesize different ideas and, and pull different ideas and viewpoints together that's what you'll be teaching them and you're good at that because you know you've you've demonstrated that you're able to do that that's why you're here as a teacher and an academic. So it's just it just requires a little bit of a, a paradigm shift, almost a kind of don't want to say thinking out the box, but it is a little bit about that um, because it can make a big difference, uh, certainly to the to the way in which the students engage with and enjoy learning if it's if it's done in that way. Um, I mean, I, I've been in the situation early in my career when I was very much the sage on the stage. I just used to stand behind the, the lectern and pontificate. And, yeah, I'd probably send a few students to sleep. Um, <laughs> but, but but kind of thinking of differently about, about learning and teaching and kind of thinking, well, actually, that time with me as the teacher is really, really important to support that higher learning. The students enjoy it more as well because you can have more fun. You can play more games. You can have more peer-to-peer interaction you know you can you can have a laugh with it as well you don't have to feel like you've got to fit in tons of content in the one hour lecture that you've got and it's all a big stress and i've got 10 10 weeks of this and how am i going to fit it all in and, and that type of thing so that that would be my um my thing to try for somebody that was going to go into the classroom tomorrow brilliant thank you for that kevin and then um lastly who who else in this space it might be in the uk um you know because UDL is relatively um, unexplored in terms of an explicit concept in the UK, but certainly it's, it's had big attraction in the US and and, and elsewhere. So who, who else should we be looking at in this space? You know, obviously we've got yourselves at DMU, you've done a lot of work in this space, but, um, you know, who have you had your eye on? Who have you looked to uh, when you've been going through the project? The, the main ones really are the guys at CAST over in America. So, I mean, we were one of the first in, in UK higher education to kind of take the first foray really into UDL. So our main point of reference were the people over at CAST. So Katie Novak, who's a bit of a world leading voice really in terms of UDL, works at Harvard. Um, there's a chap called Eric Moore, who's um, he's involved with the UDL International Research Network. Um, which have been a really useful resource for me. I'm part of that network, and I've I've supported some of the organisation of one or two of their their international conferences, and that's been a really massive learning curve to sort of learn about how UDL is applied in in different contexts, particularly the international context. And it's also been a point of reassurance to kind of reassure me that we're doing it right, and that actually the things that we're saying, and the things that we think about UDL, because I said it was an interpretation, you know, that we're actually interpreting it in in the right way. 
So, so CAST um, and the UDLIRN, the International Research Network, have been two really, really important uh, outlets for me, yeah, most certainly. Great, thank you. And uh, again, those links will all be in the show notes, uh, along with um, anything else relevant, um, which we'll pick up from you um, through emails. But um, you, uh, Matthew, is there anything else you wanted to, to pick up on before we sign off? I really, I, I really like the kind of the way that you're involving students in the kind of in the experience and in, in the sound of the kind of Cutlass program, involving them at a really early stage sounds like a really a really great thing so uh, yeah I really like hearing about that and um, the other thing which we haven't really spoken too much more but you you mentioned in your in your seminar was the kind of the way that you encourage people to use much more use flexible formats for their kind of sharing of, of information so you know um, I guess my interpretation of that is avoiding things like uh, P- PDFs and things and and using giving people formats documents in formats that they can they can do things with them and and that way giving them more accessible resources in the first instance so i thought those are two really really nice things that that you've you've mentioned thanks pat appreciate that i mean the, the cutlass one has been really important for us because it's um what what we found when we first started to develop udl practice across the institution we found that some of that was a little bit inconsistent so we found well if we can find a way of getting people to design modules and programs according to some core principles that are underpinned by udl it will be much easier to make that a consistent approach um and it's not completely sort of novel and original it's been based on the carpa dm model which was jilly salmon and then university of northampton have got a model called cairo and we basically looked at both of those models and said well what are the good bits we can take from that um the active blended learning aspects the collaborative learning aspects the kind of commitment to e-tivities rather than activities but put our own udl kind of stamp on it um and that's kind of where that came from really and it's it's lots of fun because the uh, we do we do like a storyboarding process where um in the in the old days pre-covid we used to get the post-it notes out and we'd be writing the sort of student journey on these post-its and sticking it all over the wall and kind of plotting this this journey through the learning we do it through google jamboard now um which is quite a nice tool it helps us to do it virtually uh, but that's been that's been really really useful and um I mean, yeah, going back to the second point as well, the, the resources thing. I mean, you know, if I ever buy a piece of furniture on IKEA and I can't understand the instructions, I just go onto YouTube, you know, or if there's something I'm not quite sure about how to do, you know, I decorated my spare room recently and I was really sort of like, how do you, how do you cut in, you know, so that the lines are really, really neat and straight. I went on YouTube and had a look. So, you know, we all engage with the world from a learning perspective in a way that meets our preferences. It's quick, it's easy, I can see how to do it is showing me how to do it much easier to look at youtube than to read a book i probably wouldn't have been able to do it if i read a book so it's just thinking about those things in those ways really um and you know there's a lot there's a lot we can take i think from just the day-to-day way that we all engage with the world from a kind of learning perspective uh whether it's through printed materials reading listening to things um i mean I'm, I, I love podcasts you know i find podcasts are a great way to deliver information whether it be um uh, for, for learning or, or providing feedback in an audio format and, and students like it delivered in different ways as well. And I think, you know, 
the eye generation, as they're sometimes called, which isn't a great label for them, you know, that they interact with the world in a, in a very different and unique way from what perhaps we did and, and the generation bef- before us did. There's lots of social media, there's lots of technology, lots of different apps. And you know, if you're seeing the world through that lens, it probably makes sense to try and engage learning through that lens as well, doesn't it? So I noticed that in your email signature, Kevin, you have a certification in UDL. And I was very interested in that and whether that's something that learning technologists and educational developers should think about doing as a means to skill up. That's a good question, actually. I do have a certification in in UDL. Um, This was through the UDL International Research Network, actually, that I was was pointed in the direction of this. is it something that I would recommend? I think so, because it's, it's as I mentioned before, it provided me with a little bit of reassurance. So this was only a sort of level one qualification. It wasn't particularly difficult. I think you paid something like 10 or $15. It wasn't a lot. And then you were given a, a test, which probably isn't that UDL friendly, actually, um, to, to go through a series of questions to sort of test your UDL knowledge. And then you got this little, um, this little digital badge. And I kind of thought, well, if I can't meet the level one qualification then I'm, I probably need to go and find a, another career to, to engage in but I think it's useful as a kind of check-in to, to sort of check your own understanding really it might not be for everybody but um, yeah it's, it's, it's an area that I'm currently exploring actually I'm, I'm exploring a way I, basically what I want is I want to try and create a UDL credential for UK higher education um, because we talk about it a lot and we talk about its importance, but it's you know there's no sort of framework that underpins, well, are you an effective UDL practitioner? Um, I don't know what that would look like, and I don't know what agencies I would need to engage with to sort of get that off the ground, whether that would be Advance HE or, or some other, but that's something that I would like to, um, to do moving forward. So watch this space. That's a, a, a kind of mission of mine uh, over, the, over the coming months, really. Thank you, Kevin. I look forward to seeing how that develops over time as well. Um, well, that brings us nicely to the end of the show. Um, all, that's last, all that's left for me to say is uh, Fiona from Brighton over the tracks, thank you so much for joining us on this show. Thank you and for I'm having very me. Much, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm really looking forward to continuing our conversation. And I know that we're going to very much aim to work in partnership with, with you guys in, in our exploration on this and I hope that we'll get some wonderful collaboration opportunities on that um, Matt thank you for joining us uh, roping you in within the team um, thanks for having me too nice to have you along thank you and uh, and Kevin thank you so much for taking the time to join us a- a- again for the second time in as many months oh no problem it was a pleasure enjoyed it always enjoy talking about UDL hope it was of any value I've no doubt that it will be. And um, it, again, I'll put all the links in the show notes. So if anyone um, wants to get in touch with you, then they'll know where to find out more. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. And that brings us to the end of this episode. If, like me and uh, Fiona and Matt, you enjoyed uh, very much our chat with Kevin and want to find out more about what he does, don't forget to check out all the links in the show notes and check out Kevin's uh, Global Accessibility Awareness Day talk that he did for our uh, event back in May. And uh, in the meantime, if you've got any questions or want to join a conversation or find out more about anything that we do, you can find us on Twitter at SussexTel or more about our team at sussex.ac.uk slash T-E-L. I've been Dan Axon. This has been the Tell Us podcast. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Take care.